Turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. 1955, the United States Congress passed an act to make our official motto the words, in God we trust. Um, It became mandatory, and they put uh, that slogan on all money, coins and dollar bills and bills of all kinds. Um, In fact, uh, I believe it's still on there, right? I'm not, let me check. I actually have a dollar bill in here. Yes, in God we trust. For today, exactly right. That actually uh, was originally uh, happened, in that thought in 1864 was on some coins, but then it became later on our motto, official model in our country. <clears throat> Does that motto really state the truth about our country? Does America as a whole truly trust in God? <clears throat> if you observe that the nation any, for any length of time nowadays, you'll see that that's not really true. The majority of Americans do not trust in God. <clears throat> in fact, if I was a foreigner... To visit visiting this country, I would look at the country and I would say, "Wow, I don't think this is a nation that really trusts God." I mean, a certain percentage of the people I would I would think do, but by and large, I wouldn't get that impression. And the number seems to shrink uh, generation after generation. I work with a lot of guys at Target that are in their 20s, and their their uh, reasoning, their thought process is certainly different from from other generations. That's for sure. Um, and I can think of a lot of reasons why America is not trusting God as you can yourself. However, the Bible places a great deal of emphasis on trusting God, as you know. It's all over the place. For example, in the Psalms, as we've been in the last few weeks, Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Psalm 40, verse 4, How blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 62.8, Trust in him at all times, you people. Psalm 115.11, you that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And, of course, you all know Psalm, or rather Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. So the idea of trusting God is a common theme throughout the Bible. Everywhere you find it, stated in some way, illustrated in some way, positively or negatively, those that don't trust God, it's everywhere, trusting in God. And so in God, the people of God should trust, right? whether Americans in general are are doing it or not. That brings us to Psalm 91 tonight, which is a psalm of trusting in God. Now, the writer of this psalm is unknown. There's no title given as to who wrote it. Some think that Moses wrote it because he wrote Psalm 90, and they figure, well, this uh, came on the heels of Psalm 90, and so therefore Moses may have written Psalm 91. There's some similarities between this and some things in the Pentateuch, but there's there's no definite evidence of it. The writer's anonymous. But we do know that the, the, the God, of course, is not anonymous, the one that inspired the writing. Um, the setting is also unknown. Uh, it's a psalm filled with difficulties and problems, as you can see. But whatever difficulty may come in your life, the psalm is meant to strengthen your heart. It's written to those who are in danger or, in vul- or vulnerable in some way, in many ways. The theme of the chapter is found in verse 2. Look at that. It says, the psalmist says, I will save the Lord. Uh, my refuge in my fortress, my God in whom I trust, my God in whom I trust. And uh, that's why we, I th- you think of the term, in, in God we trust, right? But in this case, the psalmist is trusting God. And whatever it is that Americans are trusting in, probably they're trusting in the money that the motto is printed on more than they are the God of the motto. Whatever they're trusting in, nevertheless, we're called to fully trust upon the Lord, right, and in the Lord. And you'll notice as you look through the psalm, there's a change of persons. 
In verses 1 and 2, you have a personal testimony of, the, of someone who is trusting in God. And you see those, verse 2, those personal pronouns, uh, my, I will save the Lord. He's my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then as you read verses 3 to 13, the, the pronouns change to the second person singular, you, or your. And, and it goes through that, those verses like that, you and your. And then you have, uh, the, in verses 14 to 16, the Lord is speaking, finally, uh, to conclude the psalm. Well, let's read Psalm 91. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the, to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach you. You will only look on it with your eyes, and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent." For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will tra- trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. It's a psalm of trust in God. And the first thing we see here in the first two verses is the psalmist's testimony of his trust in God. It's the psalmist's personal testimony of his trust in in God. He opens with a general statement in verse 1, and then he he talks about his personal testimony in verse 2. He says in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He who, he who dwells does not mean a person who comes to God uh, you know, occasionally when he feels like it, and then other times he doesn't really care about God. It's not someone who's in great distress, and so because he's in distress, he, he runs to God who he hopes will help him out of a jam, and then after the, he's helped out of the jam, he goes on his, his way and doesn't act like, as if there's no God at all. In fact, I heard a guy the other day say that he was not a praying man, he said, he said he didn't go to church, but he said he felt like at that time, at a certain time in his life, he needed help, and so he asked for a sign from God. <laughs> and he felt like he received this particular sign, but that's not what this psalm is talking about here. Not someone who comes and goes and doesn't really care about God or doesn't have a relationship with God. It's not someone who has a casual, fleeting thought about God one day and tomorrow he doesn't. No real commitment to him at all. It only applies to those who really truly know God and who seek him. Because it says they, it's, he, he dwells in the shelter of the Most High. It's like Isaiah 66. It's one who is contrite and humble and, and uh, trembles at the word of God, right? That's the person who dwells in the, in the shelter of the Most High. It's one who dwells in the presence of God. It's like we're sitting down before God like Mary did before Christ when she was sitting at his feet and listening to his word. 
These people who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, they are the ones whose lives are centered upon God. They, their lives revolve all around God. They're, they're, they're communing with God. They love Him. Not a fly-by-night person who says, I'm a Christian, and yet there's no evidence for it at all. That's not what this is, who this is directed to. It's important to understand this out the out, at the outset, that this psalm is for the one who truly trusts in God with all his heart. He or she is living a life of trust in God. That's what this person is doing. They're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. They will, they, it says that person will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In other words, they will find a home. Abiding means they'll find a home. Actually means to spend the night. To lodge in a place. They'll, they'll find a home with God. They'll find a lodging place permanently with Him. These people. A place of refuge from the storms of life. And that's what we're talking about here. And so we see that the psalmist has a personal testimony about his relationship with God, how he trusts in God. Now this trust in God is illustrated in the figures of speech that are used in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 you see these words. He talks about God being a shelter. God's like a shadow. God's like a refuge. God's like a fortress. All those figures of speech tell us that this is a God we can trust in. He says... He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, which means hiding place. God is our hiding place that we can run to in a time of danger, in a time of need, desperation. Not just on those occasions, but all occasions, we can run to him as our hiding place. In fact, the King James translates it, and I have a hard time not saying the secret place, translates it the secret place of the Most High. It's the place of intimate communion. It's a place where none but the people of God, the true people of God, are admitted to. So the psalmist says, God is my shelter. And then he says, trust in God is like a shadow. God's, he'll abide in the shadow of the Almighty under, the, under his shadow. It's like, it's like the shadow of a huge shade tree that you're resting under to find relief. In fact, when Matt and I, my oldest son, went to Haiti a while back, we ended up uh, to see the girls he was going to adopt. We ended up, for some, I didn't know this was going to happen, on the side of a mountain all week surveying surveying land for another reason <laughs> and it was very hot there and it was very there was next to no relief in fact that we didn't have any air conditioning or anything all week and uh and so we were it was hot and you know muggy and all that but i noticed there was one big tree in the field a little bit of a distance away that at lunchtime the haitian workers would stand under the tree and it, it didn't occur to me at first but i realized when i i myself stood under that tree that tree the one tree out there <laughs> seriously Man, this is a great place to be. You have relief from the, sh- from the sun out here. It's really nice under this tree. It was, it was a little bit cool under there. And I thought, wow, I see what these guys are under here for. So every time you get near that tree, you sneak, you know, you run under there a little bit for a few minutes, get out of the heat to get some relief. And that's how the Lord is. He's like the, a shade tree that gives you refreshment. There's no other place like God to run to for refreshment, for relief from all kinds of, of problems, for protection. And in, in many ways, any other place you may run to is not adequate to find spiritual relief, except for the Lord, right? He's like a shadow. And then verse 2 says, he's, he's like, he's our refuge. Psalm says, he's my refuge. Again, a shelter, a place of protection, similar term here. It's a place where you can go to find safety. And then he calls God a fortress. He's my fortress, a stronghold, a place to withstand military attack. Um, a place of uh, defense, uh, a stronghold of defense, in this case, against Satan, the Lord is, that you can run to for help 
as Satan is always waging war against the people of God in many ways, and the Lord is our fortress we can run to. All of these images here speak of, uh, illustrate trust in God. They speak of security that we have in God. Shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress are terms of security in God. Complete, we can have complete trust in Him and know, and if we do have complete trust in God, we can know that we have, we're secure in God, right? Now, the world's an insecure place, as we saw this past week in Colorado in the theater. The world's a very insecure place. We don't know what's going to happen on, to, on tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, do we? But God is a very secure, uh, is very secure, and we run to Him for help. And so these sp- figures of speech illustrate what trusting God looks like in a, in, a, in a visible, tangible way. And then notice that this trust in God is highlighted by the titles that are used for God. L- look at these titles that are used for God. He's called the Most High, called the Almighty, the Lord, my God. So these titles illustrate the fact that God is trustworthy. He's the Most High God. In other words, He's the Master. He's the Lord, the one who is sovereign over all things. We sang that song this morning, God over all. And that's what He's is talking about here, the one who's over all things. He knows what's going on in our life. He's not su- surprised by these, the things that take place in our life. He's sovereign over all these things. And He's got dominion over the whole world. Isn't this what Nebuchadnezzar the king learned in Daniel 4 when he thought he was the man? He thought he was the sovereign over all the world and at the, at the, in the verses, he learns as, as God punishes him, that, and he, he testifies in that chapter, no, God is the most high God. He's the one in charge. I'm, I'm nobody at all. And, and so he gives praise to God. God is the most high God. He's called the Almighty here, uh, the all-powerful one, the one that possesses all authority, the one who's capable of doing anything. No one can begin to even think about overpowering God. It's not possible. It's impossible. There was a, a generations ago, and you see this in the older books and older data that has, has to do with this, people used to call God the Almighty. They would talk about God as the Almighty, and they all, everybody knew who they were talking about. There was no question about it. Now that term is not even used. But God is the one truly who is the Almighty, the all-powerful one. And then he says, this is my Lord. I will say to the Lord, rather, the psalmist says in verse 2, Lord is the word there is Yahweh, as you've probably already figured out, the, the covenant name for God. The, one, the name that's used to describe his relationship with his people Israel is a very personal term describing the relationship God has with his people because God is personal, right? We think, well, God's sovereign and powerful and almighty, but that doesn't mean he's not personal to us. He's a personal God. And the psalmist says, this is my God. Same word used in Genesis 1.1, the one who's the creator God. He created all things, created all the world. He's the one who's supreme over all as a result. And, and so this one who is the creator can be trusted. That kind of covers all the bases, doesn't it? All these titles for God. And so when you look at these titles, you say, wow, this is the Lord. I can trust him because he is all this and much more. We can't even imagine what he can't even begin to define who he really is. He's so infinite, so eternal, so powerful. Now, these four titles used for God, one after the other, describe who God is. He's fully capable. He's fully sufficient to be our shelter and our shadow and our refuge and our fortress. He's totally adequate in every way. He can handle any situation that comes his way. He's sufficient in it. By the way, he's sufficient in himself. He doesn't need any help from uh, any outside assistance from anyone. He has complete sufficiency in, in and of himself. God is sufficient. So can you see from these verses, one and two, that God is completely trustworthy? 
completely trustworthy. We could stop right there and go home. I say that he's trustworthy because we're so prone to not trust him, aren't we? We tend to worry about things that come our way, fret and stew about things, and yet God is there for us to to run to. And so the psalmist declares his testimony in verse 2 very clearly. He says, The Lord is my refuge and my fortress. He is my God in whom I trust. This is my personal testimony. I want you to know that. I trust in God. It's very personal to this man, whoever he was. And obviously, the Lord had been this person's trust in times past. For him to say this, this has been his track record all along. He's known God. He's trusted in God all times. Well, let me ask you a question tonight. Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Americans, as in general, may not be trusting in the God that they, when every time they take out a dollar bill, they, they, they have the opportunity to see that. And they hand it to someone to pay for something. But Americans as a whole may not be trusting God, but... Who are you trusting in tonight is the question. Don't you know that God is our place of security? We can see that in these first two verses. Don't you know that he's capable, completely capable of protecting you? He says he is. We believe he is. We believe the word of God. And can you give a testimony tonight, a personal testimony, if you were called upon to do so? Can you give a personal testimony that God is the one that I trust? He's completely trustworthy. Can you say what the psalmist says here? He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is his testimony, uh, his personal testimony of his trust in God. And then in verses 3 to 13, we see the psalmist's encouragement for others to trust in God. His encouragement for others to trust in God. You see the personal pronouns change uh, in these these verses now. Now he goes from my and I to you and your in verses 3 to 13. No longer speaking of himself, but he's encouraging others to trust in him to join in his life of trust in God. And by the way, the you and you are singular. They're all in the singular. He's not speaking to a great crowd, a great audience, saying, all you people out there, I want you to trust in God. He's speaking to each person individually and saying, no, you, you and you need to trust in God. He's teaching people they need to do that. He's addressing individuals, speaking to each one of us. That is, if we're trusting God, it's not an open invitation to everyone. Those who are trusting God, Yes, they can partake of the promises and the blessings of this psalm here. And so take it as personal to you tonight if you're truly looking to him. So how does, how does he encourage us to trust in the Lord? Well, he says God will protect us. That's what he says. God will protect us. God will care for us. God will watch over us. God will watch over you, to use the pronoun, to use the word he uses here, or you and yours. Notice the illustrations of the Lord's protection in verses 3 and 4. The Lord's protection is illustrated in verses 3 and 4. He talks about an eagle's protection of its young in verses 3 and 4, first of all. He says, For it is he who delivers you from the stare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Now he talks about, in verse 3, he talks about the snare of the fowler. The fowler is a bird trapper. The snare is a bird trap. And the bird hunter is obviously laying a trap to catch birds. And, the, and the, obviously that operates on the principle of deceit. You lay a bait in a trap and you hope the bird wanders into it and you catch him. However they did this back then. This is an illustration of any scheme that is designed to trap the godly in some way or another. You know, religious people were always trying to trap Jesus in what he said in the New Testament and the Gospels. 
always trying to get him in. Let's try, see if we can get him by setting up a scenario and we'll present it to Christ and we'll see if we can trap him in the words that he says. And so they, they try to do that again and again. Satan sets traps for people all the time for godly people that try to fall into and, and hurt their testimony for Christ. In fact, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He's, Satan is setting traps for people to try to catch them. And so these traps are set. And, but the Lord protects us from these things. He, he will deliver you, it says, from the snare of the trapper. And then he talks about the deadly pestilence. So I'm going to cover the deadly pestilence in verse 6 when we get there. Verse 4, he'll cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you may seek refuge. The Lord cares for his own just as a hen would for her young. Another illustration here. Normally this has reference to an eagle, by the way, when he talks about this in the scripture in relationship to God. God, it says, will, will cover you with his pinions. The bird's feathers protect the young from the sun and from predators and other things of that nature. And God is the same way. David said in Psalm 57:1, in the shadow of the Lord's wings, that he, he would take refuge himself. So he uses the same illustration. Deuteronomy 32 has a beautiful verse in, in it, talking about Moses talking about the Lord. He compares the Lord to an eagle who spread his wings and caught Israel on, on his pinions and carried them through the desert as he watched over them, even though they rebelled against him constantly. So this analogy of the eagle shows us that God is tender, he's loving, he's caring for his people, like an eagle would be for his young. We're protected as we seek refuge under the wings of our Lord, as it says here. But not everybody wanted that protection, unfortunately. You remember the story in Matthew 23? where Jesus says, you know, to Israel, he says, I've longed to gather you as a chick would, would his, her, uh, her young under its wings, but you refused to do it. You were unwilling to do it. I wanted to take care of you like a, a bird with its young. You would have nothing to do with me at all. And so imagine spurning the love of our trustworthy God, as Psalm 91 says. And that's what they did, Israel did. What a perfect illustration that is of the Lord's protection. Then he talks about a warrior being protected by his armor at the end of verse 4. He says his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, is a shield and a bulwark. God's, faith, God's faithfulness is likened unto a shield. Now that was a curved shield in this case that protected the, the warrior's full body. The shield would stand on the ground and the warrior would stand in back of it. It would cover his whole body. And people would fire arrows at him with this huge shield protecting him. And he'd fire around the side his arrows. And that illustrates the, the Lord's protection of his people, like that big shield that would cover him completely. And then he says the Lord's faithfulness is like a bulwark, which was a fortress wall that surrounded uh, warriors and offered great protection. Again, a, a military term. And the, both the military images illustrate the Lord's protection of his people. And so in this way, the psalmist is encouraging us to trust God. He's the God who protects us, it says. And notice examples of the Lord's protection in verses 5 to 10. Examples of the Lord's protection. It says in verse 5, You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, of the destruction that lays waste at noon. 
thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. It will not approach you. You're only going to look on it with your eyes, see the recompense of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord your refuge, the, the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. These are examples of the Lord's protection. He's, he's going to protect us, it says in verse 5, of the terror by night. He says, in fact, I love this phrase. He says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. The examples that are given here are very serious, by the way. But he says, you do not need to be afraid of the terror that comes by night. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. He says, I will be with you if you're trusting me. Fear is a very natural thing for us, isn't it? Naturally, we would fear that which comes our way that would be problematic to us. But we don't have to be paralyzed by these things. The Lord says the one who is trusting him does not need to be afraid. Some take this as a command. I don't really understand that, but... There's some guys who really know their stuff who say this is a command here, which literally they say, it says, do not be afraid of the terror by night. I don't see how they get that, but that's what they say. So I'm not going to argue with those guys. But if that's the case, he says he's commanding us not to be uh, afraid at all. Nevertheless, he says you're not going to be afraid. It's still something we don't have to, to worry about. Why? Is it because the person possesses some kind of inward strength that they can stand up against the terror by night? No, it's because God is protecting that person. God is, you're relying upon God. I love Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. I've always, I've thought about it many times in my life. It says, you will keep him in perfect, God, you'll keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You'll keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, God. Because you can trust in the Lord, he'll keep you in perfect peace. He'll keep you from fear. So you don't need to be afraid of the terror by night. What's the terror by night? Well, it's not defined, really. Uh, It means an object of dread of some kind. It doesn't really define what it is that you may face at night. It's something that makes you tremble at night, something that makes you afraid. You know, nighttime, as I've said before, can be a frightening prospect at times, can it? Maybe you have problems that... And they tend to grow you know, greater at night if you sit around worrying about them and maybe you have issues you're dealing with and you, you sit up at night thinking and you can't go to sleep. And so it can be frightening for you. You're waiting for the day to get there. And there may be fears that are real or imagined that strike you, that come upon you, that seize you even. But it says here, if you trust in the Lord, you can avoid all these kind of panic attacks here. You'll not be afraid of the terror by night. And then it says you won't be afraid of the arrow that flies by day. The arrows that fly by day, it means appears to be some kind of a military attack where arrows are flying by you, flying at you. Dangerous situation. But he says, you don't need to be afraid because the Lord is watching over you and he'll protect you. You don't have to worry about the arrow that flies by day. In verse 6 he says, or of the pestilence that stalks it in darkness. The pestilence is a plague or disease of some kind that may strike an area and cause death for many people. Verse 3, as we, we skipped earlier, calls it the deadly pestilence. Verse 6 says it's a pestilence or the plague that walks, stalks it in darkness. You know, history records these kind of things, these plagues like the bubonic plague. You read about them in history. Hopefully, we won't have a uh, that happen in our time. You never know these kind of things. Uh, but one physician said long ago that the, he was talking about cholera. He said the best preservative against cholera was the truth contained in Psalm 91, to trust in the Lord 
And he said, that, that's the best thing you can do against the cholera that would strike. Now, there was a man in, in the 1600s by the name of Lord Craven. He was a man of nobility in England, wealthy man, important man. And he lived in a time during the 1600s in the time of the Great Plague, which was the bubonic plague. They, by the way, they say that he lived in London. They say that that plague killed 20% of London's population. Horrible plague. Can you imagine 20% of Tampa being destroyed by a plague? Spurgeon went through that, by the way, in his ministry when he was young. He had to deal with uh, cholera uh, onslaught where he had to bury people in his congregation. Several of them, as a matter of fact. That's what I understand. But in order to avoid this plague, Lord, Lord Craven decided, I'm going to leave London. I'm going to go to the country where I don't think I'll have to deal with this plague situation, this, uh, this bubonic plague. So he had his coach, his coach of horses ready, made ready. He got his baggage ready. Everything was ready to go. He was walking out to the coach to get in the coach to take off. And he overheard a servant of his say to another servant, the servant said, this is the Lord's providence, I suppose by my Lord's leaving London to avoid the plague that his God lives in the country and not in the city. Lord Craven is leaving London because he thinks, that I guess his God lives in the country. He just said it as a, as a statement. His God must live in the country and not in the city. Therefore, he's leaving the city. Well, Lord Craven overheard that. And it struck his heart, convicted him. And he thought to himself, my God lives everywhere. It can preserve me through anything in the city as well as in the country. He said, I will stay where I am. And he backtracked and went back to the house and didn't go out there. And then he said this. He said, that servant has just preached to me a very useful sermon in one sentence. And then he asked God to forgive him. He said, Lord, pardon me for this unbelief and that distrust of your providence that made me think of running from your hand. And so Lord Craven stayed on to help those who were sick. Very great help to his sick neighbors, by the way, he became. And he was never struck by the plague himself, by the way. God watched over him in that. So he trusted in the Lord. Now, these are examples of how the Lord is able to protect those seeking refuge in him from the terror by night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague, the destruction that lays waste at noonday, these kind of things. He's saying you can trust God. And then notice the undeniable reality of the Lord's protection. It's undeniable that the Lord has protected this individual. Verse 7 says, A thousand may fall by your, your side, ten thousand at your right hand. It shall not approach you because you're being protected by God. You'll only look on it with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And it goes on because he says, You've made the Lord who was my, who is my refuge. You've made him your refuge as well. He's trying to encourage us to do that. Now, when I read these verses, I thought of the ten, pl ten plagues that came upon Egypt. And, and, you know, when these plagues came upon Egypt, Israel was in the country. They were never affected by the plagues. The Egyptians were, however. For example, the swarm of flies that came upon the Egyptians. Exodus 8.22 says this, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people Israel are living, so that no swarm of flies will be there. They weren't affected by the swarm of flies, even though it was the same country. And then the livestock plague, Exodus 9.6. It says that the Lord did this thing. He sent a plague upon the livestock of Egypt. And all their livestock died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not even one died. So the Lord protected them. Just like Psalm 91.7 uh, says here, 7, 7 and 8. 
And then the, the plague of darkness, Exodus 10.23. The Egyptians did not see one another. It was so dark, they couldn't even see one another. For, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But the sons of Israel had light in all their dwellings. Obviously, the Lord protected Israel while punishing Egypt in the same country. So this would be true of them. Verse 8 says, you will only look on this with your eyes. In other words, the one trusting God will only witness the judgment of God upon those who are evil. It won't happen to him. It won't happen to him, but it will happen to them. In verse 9, like verse 9 says, you've, you've made my refuge, my Lord, my, my Lord who's my refuge, your refuge. And therefore, these things aren't going to happen to you. So he's encouraging us to trust God. The result of all this, God will take care of you just like he's taking care of me, the psalmist says. Verse 10 continues to assure us that nothing will befall us. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Godly will escape all these things, he says. The Lord's protection of you will be undeniable since you won't be harmed while others are. That's what he says here. Yes, questions are beginning to emerge in your mind, right? But he encourages us to trust in God. And then he talks about the angelic involvement in the Lord's protection, verses 11 to 13. Angelic involvement in the Lord's protection. He says here, for God will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and serpent, and the serpent you will trample down. This is not something we talk about very often, but angels are real. Now, there's a bunch of silly ideas out there about angels, but they're not biblical. But angels are real in the Bible, and God says that they're going to participate in protection of us. Now, the angels here are not necessarily volunteering for the job to protect us. I'm sure they would be more than happy to. But it, but it says here that God gives his angels a charge. In other words, he commands them to protect us. He commands them to protect us. And he says this charge is concerning you. The person who's trusting in God, he commands them to protect us. They're commanded to do it. They're commanded to guard you in all your ways. So they're being used as a source of protection. And by the way, it's not just one guardian angel. We talk about the guardian angel all the time. But it's a plurality of angels, it says here, who are protecting us. It's like your personal bodyguard, almost, of angels. And that protection becomes very personal and very detailed in the verse here. It says, they will bear you up in their hands. So you see the special care given by the angels, so much so they bear you up in their hands that you don't even strike your foot against a stone. There's nothing worse, by the way, than walking barefoot and stepping on a stone. You ever done that? They say that the enemy of the barefoot walker is, a, is an acorn. And I'm telling you what, walk barefoot and step on an acorn and tell me how you feel. It'll send shockwaves through your body. But even the angels are concerned about things like that, it says. They will protect you from the, the stone that you might even walk upon, it says. So they're participating in guarding those people of God who are dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. That's what it says, right? By the way, do these verses 11 and verse, verse 11 and 12 uh, sound familiar to anybody? Besides right here? They were used in the Gospels, right? In Matthew 4. When Satan tempted Christ... He quoted these verses to Jesus. In fact, Satan decided to be a Bible scholar. He's no doubt a liberal scholar. But he wanted to be a, a Bible scholar. And, and so Jesus is quoting verses, and Satan says, 
I, I know something about Psalm 91 of all things. He says, uh, he takes Jesus to the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. He says, oh, throw yourself down here and God will take care of you. Because Psalm 91 of 11 and 12 says, he'll give you his, his angels charge over you. They'll, they'll protect your foot even against a stone and so on. Only one problem, he misused the scripture entirely here. These verses do not teach that you can be a fool and go out and do foolish things that God will protect you. It, wasn't, it doesn't say, hey, I, I know what I'll do to uh, show God's protection. I'll jump off the Sears Tower in Chicago and, and God will save me because I'm trusting him. He'll protect me from dying. No, that's, that's a long fall and you'll, you'll die. Let me just tell you right now, okay? Uh, what did Jesus respond to Satan? He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test in Matthew 4 to that. That would be foolish to test God in ways like that. God wants us to be responsible, not foolish. These verses are not meant to be foolish and go out there and do things just to see if God will protect you. That's not what he's talking about here. So Satan, not a great expositor, misused the scripture here, okay? Don't misinterpret things like Satan did. Verse 13 says, uh, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. That's kind of a tough verse, isn't it? Is it better not to do these kind of psalms, Mike? I thought about this, doing this psalm, and I thought to myself, you know, why would we ignore parts of the scripture when they're there for us to, to teach, right, and preach? Now, if these are, I take it that these are a real wild beast. Let me say something about that, though. If that's the case, God says he'll protect you from them. He's not endorsing snake handling, by the way. He's not saying, be a snake handler like the guys in Tennessee are. In the, in the church. Don't do that. He's, once again, you're being foolish. Some think, some really good men, think that these deadly beasts are, 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 are describing, their figurative language describing the enemies of God's people. Because, they say that because in other Psalms, figurative language like this is used to describe the enemies of God's people, like many bulls of Bashan in Psalm 22 will come against you, talking about enemies. So, whichever it is, I don't know. God will protect you is the bottom line here. And I'll tell you something interesting. The temptation of Christ. In Mark 1.13, it talks, I think, in one or two verses about the temptation of Christ. And it says this, Mark 1.13. Jesus was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. So God even protected Christ from the wild beasts that were out there in the desert. And I've read stories many times. I read the one this week about a, a, a group of, uh, I think, missionaries in another foreign country that had to travel through a jungle in India or something. They heard this lion out there, a tiger, whatever it was, you know, the whole time. And they were trusting God, and they made it through safely. But God can protect his people, even from wild animals. And so the Lord, the psalmist wants us to encourage us to trust the Lord, right? Are you encouraged to do that as you read Psalm 91? Do you understand that we don't have to fear even though fear is natural to us, we don't have to fear anything at all because God says don't be afraid, right? He says don't be afraid. Regardless of whatever peril we're facing, he will be there to help. And so we ask the question, are you trusting him tonight? And then finally in verses 14 to 16, the Lord's promises to the one who trusts in him. The Lord's promises to the one who trusts in him. It says here in the speaker in verses 14 to 16 is the Lord, by the way. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him, this person that trusts in me, God says. I'll set him securely on high because he has known my name. It's interesting in verse 14. Before we get to the promises, there's a, 
There's something mentioned here about a passion for God. Very interesting word in verse 14. He says, because he has loved me. This child of mine who, who trusted me, he's loved me. That word is only used, it's not the normal word for love in the Old Testament. It's only used 11 times. And the word means someone who has a deep inward attachment to God. This person has a deep inward attachment to God. He has a strong desire for God, a passion for God, a person who deeply longs for God. This is the person he's talking about in Psalm 91, okay? From the very beginning to now, he's saying, this person has a passion for God. He deeply loves me. He's committed to me in all circumstances. Let me ask you a question. Are you that person tonight? Do you have a passion for God? And this is convicting to me, I'll tell you for sure. A deep longing to, to know him and to walk with him? This is who this psalm is for. These, this is who these promises are for that follow the one who tr- truly loves God with all his heart and is truly passionate for him. And by the way, do you love him for who he is, not just for his benefits, his promises that he gives to us? It's for that person. What are the promises? Well, for one thing, security. Verse 14, I'll set him securely on high because he has known my name. You've known the name of God. You've acknowledged him. He's a priority in your life. You love him. You tremble at his word, Isaiah 66. You walk with him. You center your life upon him. And he says, I will set that person on high. It's a great term. The word means to be set on inaccessibly high. Way up there. So high, no danger can even get to you. Like an eagle sets a nest way up on high, and predators can't get to it. He says, I'll set you on high like that. Nothing can even get to you to, get to, to hurt you. I'm protecting you. You'll be secure. If you're following me, like he says, you should. If you're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, it says. I'm only telling you what the scripture actually says here. Answer prayer, verse 15. He gives answered prayer. It's another promise. He will call upon me, this person that trusted me. I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him and honor him. James 5 says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can't accomplish much, right? Like he's referring to Elijah, who said, who asked that God that it wouldn't rain for three years, and it didn't, and then asked that it would rain, and it did. God answers the prayers of those who know him. Now, by the way, that person is still in need of prayer, right? He says he's going to call upon me. He, he better be in need of prayer, all this stuff going on in Psalm 91. He's praying to God. He's seeking God. And so his prayers are answered. He's praying. Why? Because he's praying according to the will of God. He loves God. He's passionate about God. He wants to know God. He's only interested in God. God's answering his prayers. Why not? God promises that it will be so. You'll enjoy the presence of God, he says. You'll be delivered from perils. You'll be rewarded by God even, he says. I'll honor him. He says it more than once in the Bible that he'll honor people for, for following him, for loving him. And then finally in verse 16, he says he promises a long life. With long life, I will satisfy him. Let him see my salvation. Literally, by the way, that says length of days. I'll satisfy him with the, or with the length of days, I will satisfy him. Now, we know that long life was promised in the Old Testament on different occasions to people who, under the covenant of Israel, were obedient to God. And many have lived a long life that served God and loved God. God's blessed them with that. But based on the idea of the length of days, it's interesting. That means that God would satisfy a person who trusts him implicitly with a full life, each day being full, being complete, being profitable, whether he died young or old. If he had those length of days, he would be satisfied with a productive life for God in each day, right? 
I think of, I thought immediately of Robert Murray McShane, who in the 1700s was a godly pastor in Scotland, who died when he was 29. That's really young. Guy, a man who uh, served God, loved God, was passionate about God, did, you know, was, lived a full life for God until he was 29. Read his stories. It's amazing. His days were full. They were profitable. And yet, he was, he, God took him when he was 29. But God allowed McShane to see his salvation. He truly did. So the Lord, in his mercy, promises, not because we deserve it, by the way, promises us these gifts because he's called to himself. He has initiated his call with his grace. And now he gives us grace to live for him. To the trusting soul, he gives these promises. Do you trust him with your life? Are you willing to trust God with your life tonight? Now, this psalm, as we close out here, let me say a few words. This psalm is promising, clearly, protection to the one who trusts God. Is it not? It is. There's no doubt about it at all. But as we started right from the beginning, people started asking questions in their mind, because we always do this. We start thinking about what happens in life, and we say, wait a minute. (laughs) What about those missionaries that were martyred over there? What about John and Betty Stan that were martyred? What about this friend I have who's a godly person that lost his life? What about this attack on this other individual over here? Uh, It says that they're going to get protection here. What about all the sufferings that believers have gone through? Well, let me make some observations about this tonight. Think with me through these, and you can talk about this stuff later on, too, and think further about this. And you say, no, Mark, you missed this and you missed that. I'm sure I will. Let Let me say, first of all, we will never have all our questions answered about these issues and all our curiosities satisfied in this life about this. We'll never have all our questions answered. It won't happen. Sorry. It's not going to happen. We're not going to have all our questions answered about this. We are nowhere promised that we will. What are we told to do in Hebrews 11? What the, what the people in the Old Testament, they live by faith, right? Live by faith, trusting God. Only God knows all the answers. People say, why did this person die? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not God. Only God knows. He's sovereign, right? He does what he does based on the counsel of his own will. Let's start with that observation. God is the only one that knows what's going on fully. Secondly, we need to consider the entire context of the Bible when we study any passage. Yes, we're looking at the passage. I understand that. But but consider it in the light of the entire context of the Bible, whatever passage it is. How does this passage, Psalm 91, fit in with the context of the Bible? We know that the Bible does not contradict itself, right? So this passage is part of the revelation of God. How does it fit in with that? Thirdly, God does promise trials to all believers. It says it many times in the Bible. Psalm 34, which is similar to this, says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all the Lord will deliver him. This Psalm 91 is full of trials. How would you like arrows being shot at you and having terrors come to you by night and having the plagues, uh, being in the midst of a plague and so on? All these things are trials that come or problems or whatever you want to call them. Stare of the trapper. My goodness. We're confronted with all kinds of problems with life. And, that, and the Psalm 91 says that we are. The, the person who's trusting God is not immune to all these problems. These problems are coming your way. They will come your way. What about Job, a God-fearing man? Somebody's going to say, what about Job? You're expecting some great revelation right now, aren't you? What about Job, a God-fearing man? Look what happened to him. Attacked by Satan, and yet allowed by God, ordained by God. And God worked in his life. 
How do I answer that? I don't know how to answer it. I don't know. Number four, we are promised suffering in this life. We're promised trials. We're promised suffering. Similar idea, but I wanted to say this. We're promised suffering in this life. Uh, Paul, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Paul experienced that, right? He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked in the, in the ocean. Uh, he was stoned. And on and on it goes. And so, and by the way, God had promised Paul in particular, you're going to suffer for me. He promised him that would happen, and it did. Number five, take Psalm 91 at face value. It is a psalm teaching us to trust in God, is it not? It is a psalm teaching us to trust in God, and that's what we need. We need to leave it there, really. That's what we need to do. God is powerful. He's able to protect us. He does protect us. How many times has God protected you in your lifetime? How many times does he protect us? We don't even know when he's protected us. Paul was protected. I said Paul was shipwrecked, and, all, and he was stoned, and so on he was. But God did keep him going, I will say. But he was protected on other hands, on other times. Remember the time the guys, the 40 men, decided to kill Paul, and they bound themselves under an oath? We're going to kill Paul, and we're not going to eat anything until we kill Paul. That'll make you real mad. Especially if I miss one meal, I'm not too happy. But uh, they bound themselves under this oath, this curse, and it was a curse. Um, but God intervened, and he didn't let Paul die. It wasn't Paul's time. Paul was lowered in a basket on another occasion to escape the city and danger there. So God did protect Paul in many ways. Jesus was protected by God from dying before his time came to go to the cross. There were times where they wanted to kill him, and God didn't let it happen until it was time, God's time. So let me ask you this question. Is Psalm 91 true? Of course it is the word of God, right? God protects his own in many ways. The psalm is not directed at everybody, but for those who trust God. Number six, nothing, listen to this phrase, it's very important. Nothing can happen to the one trusting God unless God permits it. Nothing can happen to the one trusting God unless God permits it. John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, said that you're immortal until God is through with you. You're immortal until God was through. Maybe you don't like the phrasing of that. That's what he said. He was threatened by the, the very people he was trying to witness to on the island of New Hebrides were cannibals, and some of them were, wanted to kill him and eat him. But God protected him time and again, although he had many trials, unbelievable trials. And yet, God, he said, you're, you're, you're here until God wants you, is finished with you. Paul ministered as long as God ordained. You and I are here as long as God, the sovereignty of God permits us to be here. And then lastly, one final word, trust God. Love God like the psalm tells us to do. Make him your passion alone in life because he alone is worthy, right? There, there may be questions in your mind. There's going to be always questions in our mind while we're in this human body, finite as we are and don't understand everything. But the Lord is trustworthy. He's dependable. Friends may fail you. Uh, family members may fail you even, but the Lord will never fail you. Now, I'm sure... As we close tonight, you're going to be thinking about all these things, and you're going to think, oh, my goodness, how are we going to deal with all this? Well, we trust God, right? We trust God, and we look at the Scripture, and we believe the Scripture, and we thank God for what he's doing in our life. Let's pray. And I'm sure that as we, after, we, after we pray, be a lot of, there may be some discussion, at least in your mind. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together, for your word. Pray we'll just take it as it is, trust you, knowing that you've defended us and protected us many times and that you'll continue to do so. We know we'll suffer uh, trials in this life, difficulties, 
We pray we'll trust you through all these things. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.